Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. You're listening to part two of the series. Enjoy. Yeah. So I have absolutely. another um, question for you. When someone from our tribe died, what happened next? What kind of ceremonies took place? So you, you're talking about the traditional um, burial practices. So it was called the yaya and it was very elaborate. Um, and so it would still be practiced into in Choctaw Nation into the late 1800s. I don't know about Mississippi Band when it ended, but or if it did. Um, but I guess it was pretty elaborate. Um, I won't get into too much of the details about like the preparation of the body and all the, that and the burial aspect. But I will just mention that it was um, there was some taboos around it or some interesting cultural aspects. So you'd have a, a period of mourning and it would depend on, I guess, the age or the status of the person. But, you know, for an older respected person, um, you know, the, the period of mourning could be six months up to a year. And then when it, at the end of it, it culminated in a yaya. Yaya just means crying, but it could last three days of continuous, you know, through the night, they would do ceremonies and, and do sort of lamentations um, but then at the end of it, here's the interesting thing. Um, there was a taboo on speaking that person, the, the deceased person's name to strangers. You didn't want to say the name out loud. So there's mm -hmm. even, th this is where it comes up mm -hmm. interesting in the Dawes. Uh, a lot of people don't know this. The, the very, the, like the elderly folks that were being interviewed during Dawes and they were asked about their relatives they were hesitant to talk about it because they didn't want to speak the name but the no cultural way. aspect yeah so but the the Dawes commissioners didn't understand what was going on so um, did they just say when you're reading those reports and stuff did it just say I can't say his name or well it, ju it would just say things like she didn't want to say the name or she was you know oh uh, my hesitant and the same thing, there was a, an anthropologist from the Smithsonian that had encountered the same thing with the Bayou Lacombe, which was a very, very traditional community down in Louisiana. And it was the same thing where he didn't understand why they wouldn't talk about their ancestry openly, to strangers at least. But it was a distinct Choctaw taboo. You didn't want to speak the name of the dead. Once you, once you had gone through the, the formal burial and the yaya you you let it go and and that's the way it was um, you know i i just put out the first um episode of this season and it was with chris alvarado who is a kumyai and he was saying that they have all these bird songs that are very ancient songs that yeah. they're bringing back to life and everything yeah. and um but he said same thing with a lot of the bird songs were you would sing them for the person who had just passed away and for one year you never say the person's name oh, because okay. you want them to like pass on to the next life and if you say their name you'll stop them from passing on um makes you wonder if maybe there was more connection among our tribes with some of those beliefs 
Yeah, you know, I live up in the Northwest and I don't know what tribal groups do this, but I just noticed like my friends or the my social network, when someone passes away, they'll do like a a public notice that I'm going to put away the photos of my my relative right? and they'll right. do it for a year. So yeah, I think, cool. I do think we're related uh, in, in these ways and there's oh similarities, cross, cross-cultural similarities. Yeah. If you think about researchers that research one particular tribe or two or three tribes, you know, cause there's so much to learn. You could spend a lifetime just focusing on certain tribes. But then if that person were to study every tribe, I bet we'd all come up with, with more information more similarities, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by language too. And, um, it's interesting. I'm not a, I'm not a fluent speaker by any means, but I, I'm decent as a second language speaker and enough where I can pick things up. But if I listen to Chickasaw, I can get the gist. And mm -hmm. I was listening to Kushada and I could get, pick out words. Now, when I listen to Creek, and uh, like Muskogee, I don't pick up any words at all. I mean, if you do a word list, you might see like the words for deer might be the same or black, whatever, basic right. words. But I don't pick anything up. But there's there's um, dialects or different languages within the Creek Nation and Seminole. And there's a, a language, I can't remember what it's called, but I think it's related to Hitchiti. And it's in in miss in um or Miccosukee, it's it's related to Hitchiti. But in Florida, right. they that's what they speak primarily, and the um Muskogee language is dying out there, and vice versa. In Oklahoma, Muskogee is spoken more widely, and the uh, Miccosukee or Hitchiti related language is kind of dying out. But oh, really? I was so I'm friends with some Creeks and Seminoles, and so they had posted them. Hey, can I get in there just out of curiosity? I want to listen to this unique language. And they were playing and I'm like, man, I can, I, not only can I like pick out some words, I, I can pick out like the, the conjugation and the tense and Are you kidding like, me? yeah, I was, I was surprised. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I That's was surprised. Crazy. Like if you pick up Mikasuki and there's another name for it. I can't remember what it's called. Like for Choctaw speakers, check it out. It'll blow your mind. It's, it's really wild. Yeah. That's crazy. The fact that you were able to pick that up and I guess the Creek were really, Creek, Chickasaw, Choctaw, they were all. Um, oh, yeah, they had a, I mean, I think Miccosukee yeah. is like their main tribes, but it's um, a coalition of tribes or a federation. I don't know what you would call it, but the town, the the different towns, they, I think they even had like uh, Uchi, which is an isolate and maybe even some Siouan speaking people in there. So they weren't all just oh. Muscogee people. Right. Oh, wow. That's insane. I love this. Bring the different tribes together. Let's do stuff. <laughs> so you and I talked last time about the Choctaws and Chickasaws and you know how when they came to Indian territory there were it basically became this melting pot of all these different tribes and yes they were kind of factioned out to different areas of the of Indian territory but at the same time the Comanche and other Plains tribes were very strong warriors and once tribes like the Choctaw move and in, moved into the Plains um, Indians territories, there was obviously some friction. Um, so tell us about how the government tried to protect the Choctaw. So there were a few forts that were set up, um, you know, during early removal era. Fort Washita is the biggest one. Um, I don't know the dates off the top of my head, but uh, this was during early removal era 
And there were some battles that took place, um, especially between Chickasaws and the Southern Plains tribes okay. that were obviously, that was their home territory where the Southeast tribes were being removed to. So um, we were interlopers. But, you know, the the tribes would, the warfare was highly ceremonial. And these, like, even Choctaws in Mississippi would cross the Mississippi River and fight the Osage and the Caddo or Caddo um, and other tribes west of the Mississippi, even before removal. So wow. there's a long history right. of this battle. Um, oh, yeah. Now, of course, it was more ceremonial. So, but um, like uh, there were naming practices. So like, for example, on for males, you might have several names of your life, but really what you wanted to aspire to is getting a warrior name. So you might say you're a little kid, you get sort of a nickname, your your name is Frog or whatever. Well, as you get older, you want you want to be like uh, uh, Tubby or something. And, right. and I don't know how, if, if people uh, understand the naming practices, but um, any kind of name that ends in Tubby mm -hmm. is a warrior's name by default. Right. And usually it's like a, a verbal noun kind of thing. It means, and he kills. So like Pisat Tubby, he looks and he kills. A Hoyo Tubby, he searches or he hunts and kills. Um, but that a tubby means that you were a warrior. And back in the day, you actually had to go into war and be a warrior to get a warrior's name. At some point, it entrenched and became a surname. But that's in, in any traditional family that has an a tubby name, if you took it back, you'd find a warrior ancestor. Cool. Whereas, like on the female that. side, the same thing is you're, when you're younger, you might have a a, sort of a nickname or a kid's name but as you got older and you proved yourself a mm -hmm. lot of uh, traditional female names would be and and she gives or she provides atima um, and a lot of uh, traditional names are verb based so there might be some stereotypical Indian names with the animals and the, the ten bears or whatever it, it does happen but if you look at the list of traditional names like uh, say, look at the signers of treaties. A lot of a lot of them are verbal names. So somebody's doing something, or they have an attribute right. of some. Yeah, it makes sense though. The Choctaw were the first to really come over and the first to really make pacts yeah. with the government that would be more so-called civil. Um, they became farmers and business people and I feel like there was a reason that they wanted to kind of hide and, and this is just speculation on my part but it seems like there was a reason they wanted to kind of make them an, ex as, an example for other tribes that were either initially in the area or the ones that they were bringing in just a little family this is a family history stuff and other Robinson or Folsom descendants out there that I've talked to have very similar stories so I tend to think that it, there's a grain of truth in this but the reason that the Choctaws decided to move and sign the, the treaty in the 1830s and become the first tribe uh, in the Southeast of the five tribes to make that removal is that they were directly threatened by the Indian agent. And this isn't in any books. This is this has been told in my family. Um, Interesting. Was it Ward? It could have been, but the the... U.S. agent that was involved in the treaty talks, if that was Ward, then yeah, I guess it was him. But they basically, they took the tribes, the leaders aside and they said, look, you saw what we did with the Natchez. You, you see what we do with the other tribes. We'll annihilate you if you don't go. 
So there was a decision made at that time to, you know, sign the treaty and remove and at least get the best terms possible at that right. moment. It was a survival strategy. So totally survival. I mean, these poor chiefs had to sit down and go, do we want to be wiped out? Do our children and women, is that what we want to do to them and, and descendants? Or do we want to go ahead and, I mean, they, it was a losing battle at that point, which is so just devastating. Another interesting aspect about those treaty negotiations is when the Europe, when the Americans came, of course, they came the, the male representatives of the government. But when the tribes treated, they had a seating pattern where they were interfaced with the warriors to protect the, the people. But they actually had the, the clan mothers on the side. You, there's um, I've seen uh, sort of sketches, an overview of, of the beauty of um, Dancing Rabbit Creek where everyone sat and it had the clan mothers up the top. And I just thought that was so cool because like they're it's looking awesome. over everything. The warriors are deciding the path because it's potential warfare, but the clan mothers were involved in that aspect. And I think that's cool because it shows our culture is integrated. We, we don't delineate between the genders like that. So, um, right. And yeah. Women were seen as very valuable in multiple right oh, yeah. ways Absolutely. for multiple reasons. Yeah. So some people mistakenly think all Native American men were big headdresses like the Plains natives, but many tribes don't wear headdresses. And some think all American Indian women wore buckskin dresses, but that's not the case either. I love buckskin dresses, but I think some are surprised when they see what our Choctaw women wore and wear. They look like prairie dresses and we wear aprons and <laughs> a diamond pattern. And of course, yeah. these dresses, they were inspired by those who were colonizing the area, of course. But if we were to go further back, our ladies wore buckskin skirts and like no top, right? So I don't think going truly traditional is a good idea for many of us. But what else can you tell us about our traditional Choctaw clothing? Oh, that's a great question. This is I, I love this stuff. And I I've kind of stumbled into this is my sort of lane right now. Ooh. I love exploring the traditional regalia and clothing material culture and i get a lot of questions about that especially like you just said like the colonial dress like i always am asked like where did this little house on the prairie dress come in right what is i mean i i get it and there's there's a lot of acrimony around it <laughs> i know right? you, have understand, you have to understand that it's neo-traditional it's if you went back in time like the full diamonds and the ruffles if you if you could kind of get an overview of what Choctaw people were wearing. And we'll look, we'll look at um, the Ohio right now. Mm -hmm. If you're going further back in time, the ruffles got uh, into a bigger yoke and okay. the, the full, uh, the diamonds turned into half diamond zigzags and they also got smaller and more um, sort of dainty and, and delicate. And they also got layered. And then also as you go move further back in time, there would be strips of ribbon, like more linear, so there was more variety. So yeah. what we have now is just a progression. I personally have a theory that the the diamonds came about as as someone was kind of showing off like, look, I can do this half diamond side, but I'm also going to do the other side and make full diamond and then sell wow. that on. Like, how cool is that? And then that just took off. But if you go back in time, you won't find full diamonds. You'll just find the zigzags. The other thing too is if you go no back further, yeah, if you go further back in time, 
the dresses also start looking like Chickasaws and Choctaws are almost indis- indistinguishable. Cushada dresses were the same thing. And the leg, the men's leggings are the same, where the border zigzag would be stacked. And you couldn't tell, you wouldn't be able to tell if someone was Cushada and Choctaw necessarily if you first glanced at them. I did not uh, now, as you move, move further back in time, like, um, you know, before the, the fabric came into play and um, more traditional material, yeah, you'd have buckskin. So some ladies could wear full dresses and there's actually some, um, well, what's that painter's name from the 1830s? George Catlin paintings mm-hmm. uh, of some ladies in very nice white washed um, buckskin dresses at a ball game. The so 1930s? there were some of those, but 1830s, I'm sorry. Oh, 1830s, sorry. Gotcha. Wow. Um, but as you, but also you got to consider that in the Southeast, it gets hot. So you don't need to be prancing around in much buckskin Deer for skin. most yeah. of the, a lot of the part of the year. Not so fun. yeah, the topless was the way to go. Uh, maybe just a little covering, uh, along the groin area, but, um, different weavings, uh, you'd have, uh, Buffalo. A lot of people don't know that Buffalo were in the Southeast. There were what's called woodland Buffalo. I think in Mississippi, those those started disappearing in the early 1700s due to overhunting. But mm, you would okay. you could uh, you could um, uh, weave that, and you would make sort of a mantle or a skirt. Um, and there's also different uh, um, types of plant fibers that you can weave to. I, I, I'm not totally into that. I have I have to say I have tried my hand at weaving, and it's not for me. So I really appreciate that people can do that because it's very tedious and sure uh, it's it's pretty amazing. In fact, this year they just had the art show, and all of the ladies' um, weavings pretty much swept the show. <laughs> oh, really? Cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it, <laughs> what I love is that Choctaw Nation teaches those classes sometimes, mm-hmm. and I'm sure every tribe has has some wonderful classes like that. So, even non-natives will often come and learn how to do that stuff. I need to learn as yeah. well about the men's ribbon shirts. Do you think are those truly traditional? Yeah, I mean the ribbon shirts that you see is sort of like the pan Indian or the intertribal thing. Yeah, totally. And if you go back, if you typed in Google right now and you said um, Mississippi Choctaw uh, 1900s, and and you're looking at early 1900s uh, um, folks in traditional regalia, you'll see the ribbon shirts. It wasn't it wasn't the full um, uh, diamonds. It was more linear, oh, and okay. some would be this way. And some would come this way, but yeah, yeah, they're definitely traditional. But yeah, I, I say this is sort of neo-traditional because this is an evolution of style, and I'm trying to kind of push it back into an earlier style where I think there was more variety. Personally, that's what I I think. Um, I support this idea. <laughs> but you know, like uh, you asked about the headdress, um, there, so there's debate within like the sort of Choctaw history circles and and there there is some evidence that there were some headdress type things but probably not like the plain style with the bonnet and the full thing it would have been more uh delicate and what we do know for sure is that there were feather roaches and um I actually, I've made some and you could have possibly traded for porcupine roach, but there were no porcupines in the Southeast. So they had to be traded for, but Chickasaws did wear 
some porcupine because they were further up north and they would also be further afield in trade. And mm -hmm. uh, Chickasaws were also known for sort of adopting more northern styles anyway. But in the, in the Choctaw communities, there would have been feather roaches, um, probably with between one and three like eagle or hawk feathers, um, and then maybe like some red feathers. And also um, crane, crane feathers were used, like the tuft of crane, the big white plumes. Mm, um, right. But right. then when, when, you know, trade items came in, styles changed. So what you'll see is like, there's a very famous um, painting of Peter Pitchland, who was dressed in traditional regalia for that time. And he's wearing a feather roach with one or two uh, raptor feathers, it looks like. Um, but at some point, um, a turban became traditional. And then yeah, a uh, trade see... silk. A lot of people, I, I noticed you wear the turban, but you don't see a yeah. lot of it. It reminds me of Seminole for some reason. I'm yeah. sure there are a lot of tribes that used it, but yeah. go ahead. So go all, ahead. all of the Southeast tribes uh, so, sort of adopted this um, turban style, but you'll see um, the feather roach on the back of the head with the cloth turban. And then uh, a Southeast staple, or you know, this is like the defining thing for a turban was a turban band or a crown. And so uh, sterling silver, trade silver became a status symbol. And that that became predominant over all the Southeast. So like the gorgets or the gorget, if you're fancy, that you see the, the crescent, that, that became a status symbol. But that actually came from the warrior tradition too. So it was a European um, accoutrement uh, for officers or high-ranking people. But when, when tribes allied with the Europeans, they started, you know, gifting these um, uh, gorgets as, you know, gifts or to curry favor or to give to the chiefs. And it became a status symbol. So they started wearing those. But if you look at the European style gorgets, they're a tighter crescent and they're more uh, convex or concave. Mm -hmm. um, but then when it became incorporated into the native tradition, they sort of toned it down. It became more like a moon-like shape, flattened it out. And then they started adding tears to it that's not a european mm -hmm. thing you don't see military uh, gorgeous in in double triple or quadruple tiers so you'll see one two three or sometimes four different levels um but a lot of this stuff it almost kind of went away um some of the mississippi folks were still doing this in the early 1900s but i mean it got to the point where there were only in all of Mississippi and Louisiana, there were only like one or two silversmiths that were still working in this old style. Um, and it just wasn't as common, but it's coming back. And then uh, the great. females too, like the the silver was, so the frills that people can talk about um, on the um, Little House on the Prairie dresses, that used to be a larger yoke. And it mm. used to have uh, ribbons around the edge, but it would cover more of the shoulder area. That used to be encrusted in silver brooches and pin brooches. Really? And, and necklaces. Yeah. So it would show your wealth. Um, dangle earrings, hair ties that would come down like feet. And it would, you basically wore your wealth on your person. That's amazing. Yeah. And I noticed like before you changed your background um, behind you were some of the crescent pieces of jewelry um, and you made those yourself, I assume, correct? Yeah. So like 
Oh yeah, here you go. Yeah, so this a lot of stuff oh, I fabricate wow. and then I eventually sell, but um this is my personal set. So this is That's um, amazing. And so that yeah. would have been really fancy back then. And oh, yeah. more of a native adaptation to what they had seen. Yeah, in fact, I'll show you. I have a military style. So you can see the difference. This is this would have been you can see how it's like more concave or convex yeah. orientation and it's got oh. a tighter curve. Well, when the when it passed on to native style, it became more like a moon crescent and then very different. It's flatter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the pattern in it is beautiful. So I did my zigzag half diamonds on that. And then, I, so Choctaw motifs are just very traditional. So a lot of uh, moons and suns, crosses. Right. And I mean, in fact, while we're talking about that, that's something we haven't talked much about yet is you're doing something interesting, bringing back the Southeast metal tradition so tell us about the silversmithing of the past yeah i mean so it probably came in around you know early 1700s um when europeans really got a foothold in that area and of course at first it would have been the french so the french would have used those gorgets too and the choctaws allied with the french um and there was a market a european market for the indian trade so a lot of this stuff was made by european metalsmiths but at some point, uh, native uh, smiths started you know, acquiring the skills. Um, so you know, you can find at different archaeological digs uh, native produced items. So they, you get a hold of a silver coin, you flatten it. You got a hammer and an anvil that you traded for. Hammer that out and and, and stamp in your motifs. Um, and then it just kind of evolved from there. There there were some sort of um, gender specific uh, accoutrements that I've I've noticed. One is that the nose ring with the ball or the dangle was for males only. Females didn't wear that. Um, uh, males and females would wear the ball and cone earrings or the dangle earrings. Females would wear uh, like a, um, a comb on the backside mm -hmm. or a, a hair dangle. Um, that was a female thing. And the females wore more of the brooches. Um, you, males would wear sort of uh, what's called pin brooches, smaller ones on the shirts. But the big brooches were really, you'll see that on on ladies' dresses more. Cool. So there were different styles that you would see on, on men and women. You know, side note, I we were talking about traders and stuff. How far back do you, did the traders come in and start influencing the people of what is now America, the U.S. 1500s, well, so, 1600s. So it, it really depends on what tribe you're talking about and, and when the European uh, colonial powers moved into a given location. So uh, where Choctaws are, it's kind of interesting because you have the interface of French, Spanish, and English, and then Americans. Um, so you can even see that in our language. So I'm actually taking my first language, my formal language class. Uh, and um, But we're kind of going over the basics and like uh, the word for cow is walk. So it comes from Spanish vaca and uh, the word for cat, catos, this is again, Spanish. Right. Uh, chicken, 
uh, Akanka from cock from English. Um, there's a, a bunch of words like that. Like, so words that maybe they're foreign animals or, or elements that we didn't have. Mm -hmm. uh, so then you just adopt the word. So it kind of shows you what, who, so when we were dealing with cows, we were dealing with Spanish. And when we, when we saw that hat with the brim and called it a chapeau, we were dealing with the French. French. Yeah. yeah so. How much they picked up on each other's names. For instance, I have Creek family members, you know, Muskogee Creek who have the last name Canard and Canard means duck in French. Yeah. Um, I took like four years of French and college <laughs> don't remember a thing but i do remember duck <laughs> but the canadians also have canards that are native american but they're mm. in canada they're not creek and mm. i don't know what tribes they're from but i'm I'm always like was there that much like there were french canadian traders up in canada they took on the last name the surname canard at some point and those you know french mm. were down in where the creeks lived and same thing it's just kind of an interesting Again, that bringing all the crossroads together and trying to find the middle ground of what's the common denominators. But I think it's fascinating how so much of what we have today is not only outside traders coming in from other countries, but also different Native American populations actually um, influencing each other and picking up on each other's um, jewelry, um, dress, words, things like that. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of French names in the Choctaw population too. Like off the top of my head, Batiste is the big one. And totally. then LaFleur. Yeah, Batiste. LaFleur. Yeah, yeah LaFleur. you're right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the Mississippi River brought folks from, you know, the oh. French Canada, but also you had the colony down in uh, New Orleans and Mobile was French. So true. So, you know, it's it's interesting if you look at the the tribes treaties, they actually treated with Spain first in, in the Spanish uh Spanish Florida in the panhandle. Choctaw oh, claims geez. extended all the way down there. So I I believe I want to say the first treaty was with Spain, and then there were treaties with France. Um but you know, I when I do genealogy, here's this is the interesting thing. So um there were different colonial systems and they had their, you know, different dispositions and like French and Spanish were more willing to mix with native people. So you see a lot of that mixture today and it, it happens in the DNA. You see the DNA test, but for whatever reason, the Anglo colonial system, there were, you know, um, Irish and Scottish uh, traders that would come in and marry, but there weren't as many English Anglo-Americans yeah. and I just I think there was a different kind of colonial mindset where they were coming to settle and they wanted lands and they they weren't interested in, in uh, inter, intermarrying with indigenous right. was, we'll convert you to our religion <laughs> yeah. but we're not going to marry you <laughs> yeah. I agree with that I never actually thought about that but you're right yeah yeah so like and you can see it in the DNA too like um uh Hispanic population the majority has indigenous ancestry, the vast majority, like I would say the 90th percentile. Wow. And even the African-American population is fairly high, like say 20 some percent have appreciable levels of native ancestry. Um, and if you look at French Canadians or even like Cajuns, 
over half of them will have some indigenous ancestry. It might be remote, but it's there. And yet when you do like a non-Hispanic white population, it's like, I think it was something like 2.5% have at least 1% native admixture. So it's extremely low. It's a cultural thing. Right. So what were the traditional metalworking tools that were used back then as compared to today? You might be surprised that at the same kind of tools that we use today would have been available back in the even 1700s, like the snips and the hammers and the anvils. It would have looked all the same. So, you know, you trade for that. Um, but you can get a lot done with just basic tools, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I do. I, I, I can solder, but I do a lot of what's called cold work. So yeah, uh, it's yeah. a lot of hand tools. Now I'll use power tools to to speed the process up, like drills and stuff. But you can get a lot done with punches, just basic hammer, a punch, an anvil, um, and you know even like the um, the sandpaper and stuff. Yeah, you, you, there were files available back in the 1700s as well, 1800s. Huh. Um, Metal. Yeah. I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there were files, scissors, uh, ten snips being traded. Yep. Yeah, I and, actually and want to teach a class down at Choctaw Nation uh, one day. Um, That'd be so I, cool. I would come. Yeah, I want to do like I want to do like a gorget making class and maybe a brooch class. Perfect. Because you can do a lot. You don't need too much stuff. It's just a matter of understanding the process and maybe yeah. some safety yeah. stuff, but. <laughs> uh, but anyone yeah. can do it. That's great. So you do um, metalworking. Is that something that you're selling those pieces somewhere? Yeah. So I actually, I love doing metalworking, but I can't keep up with demand. So I started an Etsy page called um, Talihada Metalworks, uh -huh. but I, I very infrequently have metal available. I, I I really work directly with native folks that are doing like cultural revitalization. Um, so mostly my stuff on on uh, Talihada is like t-shirts and swag. Okay, <laughs> great. Well, we should check it out. Let's yeah, I mean if yeah, I mean if if folks are interested in metal, just shoot me a message. Um, I do take commissions okay. occasionally. It's but like I said, a lot of times it's like, it. I, can't, so I really demand. can't, I can't keep up with it, honestly. Wow. Um, and that's just sort of selling in-house and, um, you know, working with other tribal members. Um, and I'll work with other Southeast tribes too, like, um, you know, folks that work with the cultural departments and they need very traditional regalia. And um, I'll do stuff that like, I'll even do stuff by hand that you, you wouldn't really see much uh, these days, like hand chasing, um, what's called rolled edges along the gorget. Um, also, as I'm getting older, my arthritis is kicking in. So I just, uh, I can't do as much of the output as I used to. Same. It's so frustrating. And my <laughs> eyesight is not good. So beating is out as well. <laughs> yeah. I can't drive at night because my eyes, I can't focus. <laughs> right. What is happening to us? I don't think anybody really <laughs> warned us about like, oh, this is what happens in your late forties. Jeez. <laughs> Well, I'm really excited about the eternal heart sculpture you're creating to honor the Choctaw-Ireland relationship. So when will it be revealed? That's a good question. So um, initially, we were kicking around um, late this year, but that's not going to happen. Um, so we're 
thinking spring of 2024, but we don't have an exact uh, date for that. I propose that we do it sometime around um, St. Patrick's Day, just because I think it would be apropos, but um, yeah, it's sort of up in the air. All right, well, we'll keep an eye out for it, and I'll be sure to repost it once the news is out there about when it will be unveiled. Before we go, tell us once again how folks who are looking to trace their Native ancestry can find your business. Yeah, so it's... um, NatAmGen, N-A-T-A-M-G-E-N.com or Native American Genealogy LLC is my business. But um, yeah, if you just punch that into Google, uh, it should pop up. Um, And like I mentioned before, there's different packages, so different price points. But we also do, if you have sort of a special project or even just you needed to do a consultation about something, Um, Just shoot me a message. Yeah. I think this is the answer to so many people's questions because many of us have looked for genealogists. Not all of them specialize in Native American ancestry, but it's nice to be able to go to a a Native American person and get that information. And you are educated in it and you've been doing it for many years. So super excited about this. Before we go, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners, Sam? Well, just thank you, Rachel. I think this podcast is, uh, it's amazing. I don't know of any other type of podcast that, I know you focus on all Native, but like a Choctaw-centric kind of podcast and professional. Um, I really appreciate you reaching out. Again, we're all about preserving these stories and this history. And you're one of those stepping stones for people to be able to do that with, with your new business. So that's cool. The Choctaw Irish Brotherhood and Sisterhood of 176 years ago lives on today. May we never forget the suffering of those who walked the Trail of Tears and of the Irish who lost so many lives during the famine. And may we also celebrate the resilience and hope that lives on among our people. Sam Yakoki for joining me today. Yakoki. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.